This morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. When Allison was 25 years old, she was bright, well-educated, beautiful, and about to marry the man that she loved. And then 10 years later, she stood up in church to give her testimony. It started out with this question, why? Why the pain? Why my suffering? What are you doing in my life, God? Can I be sure of Jesus? Since she married, she has experienced the hardest years of her life, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the marriage itself. She married the man of her dreams, and he has lived up to those dreams and exceeded every hope that she ever had. And yet at 27 years old, just two years after her marriage, she was diagnosed with a condition that made her infertile. It was especially devastating because Allison had always wanted a family of her own. And then years later, the Lord made her dreams come true, and he worked through that infertility to give her and her husband, Chad, a son that they named after another son who was a dream come true, Isaac. And yet, just after she and Chad had Isaac, she was diagnosed with a permanent nerve disorder of the jaw that led her from doctor to doctor and surgeon to surgeon and left her in unrelievable, even debilitating pain. It eventually led her to Johns Hopkins to see the world's leaders and this type of neuralgia that affects many people. The nickname for her problem is called the suicide disease because the pain is so intense and so nagging and consistent that many people decide not to go on with their life with it. It left Allison asking, what are you doing in my life, God? Can I be sure of you, Jesus? Are you who I'm supposed to put my trust in or is there someone else? Perhaps you've felt this way before. Perhaps it's not, in fact, I'm pretty sure it's not because of the same circumstances that Allison went through. Nevertheless, the basic question is almost always the same when we encounter difficulty in our lives, and that is this, Jesus, should I trust you, or is there another? And as our passage opens this morning, that is the very question that John the Baptist, someone that we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke, that's the question that he's asking. Jesus, should I trust you or is there another? As we continue to work through Luke chapter 7, we need to be reminded that Luke himself is seeking to answer this question, who is Jesus? And part of that answer comes by hearing Jesus' response to John the Baptist's question. Our passage opens in verse 18 and sets the context for us. There we read, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. That is, they saw what Jesus was doing, they heard his teaching, and they went back and reported to John, this is what we see Jesus doing, the man that you pointed to us and said, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This is the problem, this is the question rather that John asks. At some point, it's probably the question that everyone asks who has encountered Jesus. Are you the one who is to come? Are you truly the Savior we need? Or shall we go look for another? And today, from the text, what we want to see is the answer to that question. The answer is this, there is no need. There is no need to look for someone else. Jesus is truly the promised Savior of faith. He is the one in whom you should trust. As Luke shows us, the first thing that he shows us about Jesus is that Jesus is one who encourages faith. Jesus encourages faith. The passage opens with John the Baptist sending his disciples to Jesus with this question. And to fully understand what's going on here in the text, we need to take a, a few steps back in the story. 
we need to remember that Luke opens his gospel by telling us about John the Baptist. You remember that uh, God broke his 400 years of silence with the promise of John's birth to an, an elderly couple. It was a miraculous birth because they had never been able to have children before. And he was promised not only to be a son for them, but he was promised also to be a prophet. That he would be the one that would point the way forward for God's people. That they might uh, have repentant hearts in preparation for the coming of their Savior. John was all of this and more as he stood out by the Jordan River confronting the sin of Israel and baptizing them as a sign of their repentance before God. That's why he's called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He was the one who called Israel to repent and to show it by the waters of baptism. But he was also the one who identified Jesus as the promised Savior. Remember, he looked at him and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's chapters 1 through 3 of the Gospel of Luke. And then at the end of chapter 3, Luke gives us this little, this little aside comment that he doesn't elaborate on. Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John the Baptist for Herodias, his brother's life, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And that brings us to where we're at in chapter 7 today. John the Baptist is in prison because he had confronted the most powerful man in the world and he had pointed out his sin to him. The man was Herod the Great, the ruler of Galilee and the surrounding area. In addition to the many other wicked things that he had done, Luke tells us, he adds to his wickedness by imprisoning John. Why did he imprison John? Because Herod had taken his brother's wife for his own. The wife of another man, he said, no, I think you're beautiful, so you're going to be my wife. And John called him on it. He said, that is wicked, it is sinful, and you should repent. And Herod said, "Mm, I don't think so, go to jail. And so now John is locked up. And on some level, I think John's okay with that. I mean, he obviously has not got it too rough because his disciples are freely coming and going to him and talking with him. But more than that, he's he's pointed out and he knows that Jesus is the Messiah, his own cousin. Jesus is the promised Savior. And so he's expecting he's going to be free soon. Like many in Israel in that day, John knew the prophecies about the coming Messiah, the Christ, And believe that he would be judging sin. And that he would also be doing that not just physically, but also spiritually. He wasn't thinking about the spiritual in this moment. He's thinking about the political. He's going to be a political savior. That he's going to come and like King David, he's going to conquer the enemies of Israel. And he's going to establish a reign of peace and security where Israel might flourish, flourish spiritually. But all he's hearing about is Jesus preaching and healing. And suddenly John is sitting in prison and he's wondering, well, what's going on? Where's the judgment? Where, where's, where's the fire? Where's the vindication? Remember what John had preached in chapter 3. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's talking about Jesus coming and judging the world, gathering the wheat of his people to him and throwing off the chaff, those that have rejected him and rejected God, into the fire, into hell. And John's saying, where's the fire? Where is the, where is the judgment? I, I'm languishing here in prison for, for the fire that I used to denounce Herod's illicit marriage. Why hasn't Jesus denounced Herod? Why hasn't he overthrown his reign? 
of the power given to him by God's Spirit, imposing judgment on him and on all of Rome. John has all these questions in his mind, and he's discouraged that things are not playing out the way that he expected. And in the midst of this discouragement, John begins to wonder, is, is Jesus really the one who was promised? Is he really the Christ that was to come, or should we be looking for someone else? That doesn't make John a skeptic about Jesus. He knew that he was from God. He knew that he was a prophet. But he can't clearly see what God's doing, and he's confused. He's confused about the ministry of Christ and how it's playing out before him. So when these disciples of John show up, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what John is thinking. He knows he's discouraged. And so Jesus intends to act in such a way that John will be encouraged in his faith. How does he do that? He does three things. First, he encourages with patient care. He encourages with patient care. In verse 21, Luke says, in that, in that hour, that is the hour that these messengers from John came, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who was not offended by me. Now you think about Jesus, you think about John. Uh, John is this, is, there hasn't been a prophet in, in 400 years, and John, John's the man. And John's going to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. And, and he should be this, he should be this rock. And, and how easy would it, for have been, uh, would it have been for, for Jesus to send back his messenger and say, say to John, oh ye of little faith, buck up, come on. Uh, get your act together here, you're, you're the prophet. Uh, you did what you're supposed to do, you're in prison, suck it up and let's move on. That's not what Jesus does, does he? That's not what John needs in the midst of his discouragement. What he needs is to be encouraged. He doesn't need, here's a Bible verse, call me in the morning. What he needs is someone to be patient with him, to, to love him enough to, to encourage his faith out of the discouragement that he's in. And just as Jesus is patient with John, Jesus is patient with his people even today. Remember a few weeks ago we saw from Matthew that Jesus is the one of whom it is said, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That is to say, when Jesus sees sincere faith, no matter how weak, no, 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 no matter how small, you, th you think of a, a, a candle that you've just blown out and there's that, that slight golden ember and that little bit of smoke that's coming. If you just let it go, it's eventually going to go out. Or you can lick your fingers and just snuff it right out immediately. And what Jesus says is that he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He sees that, that person that, that just has just that little bit of faith, but it's so tiny, it's so small, and, and he comes and he breathes on it. And, and, and he, gets the, he gets those embers going. He gets the, the candle relit again by, by caring for it, by being tender with it. Jesus is not one who sees those that are discouraged and just says, you should be doing better. Either get with it or, or get out. No, no. He comes with patience and with care. And, and he encourages our souls. That's what he did with, with John, and that's what he does with us. And that's why we should not be afraid to go to him in our discouragement. We should not be afraid to say to, to God, I, I'm discouraged now. I, I, I'm going through a difficult time, and I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure about all these things. My life is not going the way that I expected, and, and, and frankly, I feel distant from you. Will you help? Will you offer some encouragement to me? And Jesus will. He will encourage us. In fact, that's what he did with John in sending 
the disciples back to him. John sends the the messengers and Jesus doesn't immediately send them away. First he says, uh, just hang out with me for a few minutes. Watch what I do, hear what I say, and then go back to John. And what does he do? Well, first of all, he encourages him with powerful displays. With powerful displays. In the midst of this patient care, Jesus does two things. And the first is he encourages with powerful displays. Luke says, in that very hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then he goes on, and what does he say? He says, go tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John lets, Jesus lets John's followers see him in action. That is to say, he lets them see him heal and he sees displays of God's power at work. They've seen, at the very least, they've heard about what just happened uh, uh, previously to this. As Jesus walks into a town and he sees pity on this this widow whose only son has died and she raises him back to life. God shows his power even to those of us who are discouraged and weak in our faith. And Jesus is pointing that out to John's messengers. Look at the power of God in your midst. God has not forgotten you. He is not far away. He is here and he is working. This is of a special encouragement to me because uh, personally my temperament is such that it's very easily, it's very easy for me to get discouraged. And, and, I, and that is a battle that, that I constantly fight, is to remain encouraged about what God is doing in my life and, and in the life of the people here at Crossway. And I remember several years ago um, where I had been discouraged for a while, really for, for, for several weeks, and uh, God was very merciful. Because although I didn't see it at the time, over the course of the week, everything that I asked for in prayer, God gave to me immediately. And, and it wasn't like big things. I wasn't like saying, you know, I need a new car. Give me a new car. No, it, it was, it was frankly just kind of getting through life stuff. Uh, help me, help me to, to parent my kids well. Help me to, to love my wife well. Give me, give me some wisdom as I go to your word. Give, give me a, a desire to, to be in your word and to pray and to, and to preach to your people. And it wasn't until the, the end of the week on Sunday morning that I realized what, what God had been doing. As, as Bible study was beginning, I was not teaching a class, so I was sitting down with my, my, my sermon notes in front of me. I had my Bible open, and I uh, had a glass of water, and I'm getting ready to start going over my sermon and praying through it. And, uh, and, and suddenly in my mind's eye, there was a family that had not been here in weeks. And I, and I, and I prayed, I said, God, I said, wake them up this morning. Wake them up right now, get them motivated, and bring them to church that they might be encouraged by God's word, that they might hear a word from you. And in that moment, I sincerely meant that prayer. I knew that God was capable of doing it, but frankly, I didn't really expect him to. And I went back to my looking over my sermon notes and getting ready for the sermon. And sure enough, I've got my microphone on, I've got my Bible in my hand and my glass of water. I'm walking up right before Sunday school is done to put it in the, in the podium. And as I walk in, there sits that family. And, and, and it, it just devastated me. And, and, and as, we, as I'm sitting at the front and we're singing these songs about God's provision and His power and His care for His people and, and, and even sending Christ to be our Savior, it, it, all of the words, the truths of those songs suddenly came alive in my mind. And I realized what God had been doing all week. Showing me in the midst of my discouragement, I'm still here. I'm hearing you. I'm answering your prayers. I'm sustaining your faith. 
And I couldn't sing. Couldn't even sing. Just stood there and wept the whole time. Probably freaked out the music team. What is going on? Nervous breakdown. And, 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 it, and it was more than that. It was just the glory of seeing the power of God demonstrated. Not any big thing. It, it wasn't some big catastrophe that I was saved from. It was just, it was just the, the consistent faithfulness of God revealing himself in my life. It encouraged my faith. And I realized, I realized that one of the ways, as we see here, that God encourages us is often to reveal his power. It doesn't have to be in big ways like raising the dead. It can be even small ways, like we're on our way to work, at least we want to be on our way, and we can't find the car keys. And we're desperate not to be late, and we're begging God, help me remember where I put those car keys. How many of you, when you find them, forget to thank God that he brought that to your mind and allowed you to find them? That's God at work, my friends. And he's reminding you, even in those small ways, I am here and I am with you. But most often, most often he encourages us the way Jesus does, and that is with his promised faithfulness. Jesus encourages us with promised faithfulness. After all these miracles are performed, he says, go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. Not, but, but notice what he says. Not just, not just the miracles. He uses what is clearly heightened language here. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blesses the one who is not offended by me. And if we're not careful, we're going to buzz through that and think, oh, he's just talking about what they saw. It's more than that. If you're, if you're doing the two-year Bible reading plan with us, then perhaps these words are familiar to you. Perhaps you're recognizing them. But if not, it's okay, because most Bibles today have this really cool feature, and that is they'll tell you when the New Testament is quoting to or alluding to the Old Testament. So as you're reading, you see all those sometimes annoying letters and numbers that are in the, in the midst of the Bible, not the verses, but those other tiny, tiny little things. And you look down at the bottom, they're telling you, hey, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here. What is he quoting? He's quoting from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel or the, the, the Old Testament gospel because so much of it is promising and predicting who Jesus will be as the Savior of the world. It is one, it's one of the, it's one of the, the clearest places where in Psalm, or Isaiah 53 where it talks about what will take place on the cross and that Messiah will be the one who is not just reigning as a king but who will be a suffering servant for his people. And Jesus is quoting from two of the most important chapters about the work of Messiah, Isaiah 35 and 61. Now you say, now what does that have to do with promised faithfulness and how is it encouraging to John? It's encouraging to John because John knew and loved the book of Isaiah. You say, how do you know that? Because the very outset of his ministry, when people ask, who are you and what are you doing? He quotes from Isaiah to describe his ministry. He quotes, you can go back and look at it in chapter 3. At the very beginning, he quotes from him. And so now Jesus is giving right back to him the words that he already knows. He's going to instantly recognize that's from Isaiah. And I think D.A. Carson is right when he basically says, Jesus is telling John, John, look closely. The promised blessings of the kingdom are dawning. What I am doing right now is fulfilling the very scriptures that you love. If the judgment has not yet dawned, it will come, but not yet. Right now, focus on the good that is being done and let it confirm that I am who I say I am. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's taking the promised faithfulness of God and saying, this is what is happening in your midst. The word of promise, the scriptures are true. I am doing them. The very scriptures that you love 
from the prophet Isaiah. This is what is taking place. Therefore, have confidence in me. Be encouraged that your faith in me is justified. That I am the one who was promised and am now here. And again, the same thing is true of us today as God seeks to encourage us. He will remind us of his promises to us as we open up his word and read by the power of his spirit. He will remind us that he has faithfully fulfilled all of these promises in the past and therefore we can know that he is with us today and he will continue to fulfill his promises for our future. Though we may languish now for whatever reason, he is still with us even in the midst of our discouragement. And one day all those discouragements will vanish as he returns for his people and erases sin forever. Jesus encouraged John's faith by reminding him of God's promises in Scripture. That is why it is so important for us to be in the Scriptures, to be hearing from God through the Bible. And why even above that, it's important that when we gather together, not just on Sundays, but whether it's electronically over Facebook and the phone, or whether it's getting together with lunch with other Christians, that we have the words of promise on our lips, that we're using the Scriptures to encourage one another and build one another up in our common faith. Jesus encouraged discouraged faith, but he also vindicates discouraged faith. This is the second thing that we see about Jesus from this passage, that Jesus vindicates faith. John's messengers leave to take, to take back Jesus' words to John with them. And either because he hears them murmuring or because he's granted insight into their hearts, we don't know how, but Jesus knows what they're thinking all of a sudden. He knows what the crowds are thinking. That... John was this great prophet that they had listened to. They had believed his message was from God. And they responded to it in faith. But now they've heard this exchange and they're wondering about John. Maybe, maybe he's not that great of a prophet. I mean, Jesus' disciples did, or John's uh, disciples didn't take Jesus off in a corner and say, Hey, uh, we have something to talk with, uh, about. You know, uh, John wants to know, hey, are, you, are you the guy or should we look for somebody else? Jesus is in the midst of healing. He's in the midst of teaching. He's doing all these things. He's coming down. There's a crowd around him. And they just cut through. So it's a public conversation that's taken place. And now all of these people who had responded to John, who have now following Jesus because John has said this is the Messiah, now they're saying, well, well, if John's discouraged and John's unsure, maybe we should be unsure. I mean, maybe John wasn't as great of a prophet as we thought. Maybe his, his word was not from God and we should not be putting the kind of faith in that word that we thought we were, looking now at Jesus with eyes of faith. So Jesus says, you want to know about John? You want to know what kind of man he was? You want to know what kind of prophet he is? You want to know whether or not he's reliable? Let me, let me tell you something about John. Let me remind you what most of you already know about him. Verse 24. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet... This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. As we think about Jesus vindicating 
faith, we first want to see how he vindicates the life of faith. How he vindicates the life of faith. Jesus challenges any thoughts of downplaying John's significance by reminding the people just who John is. Here's what you yourself saw and you yourselves know him to be. He says, what did you, do? What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Remember, that, that, uh, remember how John preached. He was not some milquetoast convictionless wimp who was just concerned to get, to get the love of the people in large offerings. He stood on the banks of the river and he looked at the religious leaders and said, You guys are a brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you down here with me when you're going to hell? I mean, that's not somebody who seems to, to care much about what people think about him, right? I, I, mean, I mean, he, is, uh, he was the, the original hellfire and brimstone preacher. He, he was not afraid of anything. This is the guy who confronts Herod, the king, about his sin. Then he says, what did you go down to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in the splendid clothing and live in luxury or in Cain's courts. He said, who did you go down to the Jordan to see? A fancy boy? D- dressed in something nice, some, some silk thing? That's not who John was. In fact, that, that soft clothing there has the idea not just of something fine and expensive, but even something of, uh, that we would consider slightly effeminate. He says, you see a girly guy down there by the waters? That's not John. I mean, he's going around. He's not even wearing cotton. The, the dude's wearing camel hair. And, and trust me, I've petted a camel. It's not soft. Okay? Go to Africa. You get to pet him or go down to the zoo or something. But uh, it, it's not a real comfortable kind of thing. And he's out there, he's eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, this is not the guy living in luxury in the palace saying, I'm going to go out and I'm going to be a prophet because I'm going to get rich and I'm going to be comfortable and I'm going to be loved by God's people. He says, who do you think John is? In fact, he gets a little bit of a dig in here, doesn't he? Talks about those that live in luxury at the king's palace. The king is the wicked man who should be in jail, who should be suffering for his sin, but he's living in the palace. Well, John, the righteous man, he is the one languishing in prison. Then finally he says, well, then did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He says, what were you going out to see when you left your homes and traveled out to see John? Did you go out to have your consciences soothed? Did you go out to feel good about yourself, to get a little pep talk so you have more self-esteem? He says, no, you went out to hear a word from God. And it's not like all of a sudden someone said, hey, there's a prophet. And the whole city showed up at once. That's not what happened. John goes out in the Jordan. He starts preaching to the few people that are down there doing the wash. And they're like, who in the world is this? What kind of preaching is this? So they go back to town and they start talking. I think there's a prophet out there. We haven't had one in hundreds of years, but this guy seems like the real deal. Certainly looks like one. Kind of weird, a little off balance. But what he's saying lines up with the Bible. And so word begins to spread. And again, it's not like he starts by saying, uh, be warm and filled. And then when people actually show up, he says, you better repent because judgment's coming. He starts off with the fire. He starts off with the judgment. He starts off with repent for the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is here. Turn from your wickedness and seek God. Give, give, give evidence of this by living lives that bear good fruit of works. And so it is in fact the, me- the hard message that draws people out to hear him. Because they said, we're not here preaching like this before. And they, they know this guy is from God. He says, you know the hard message. You know what it was. Why do you doubt him now? Why do you think that he's, he's just out for himself, that he's this fickle reed, blown around in the wind when he's popular and, and scared? He says, that's not who John is, and you know that's not who John is. 
This wasn't his finest hour. John's, that is. He's discouraged, and it's public now. And even though John probably never heard what Jesus said, I mean, think about that. John's about to, to, to put, Jesus is about to put his stamp of approval and to say uh, the most encouraging things about John, and yet, as far as we know, John never heard it. He sends the messengers away before he talks to the crowds. But he vindicates him before them. And notice how he does it. He doesn't base his judgment of John on the time when he was the weakest. He doesn't say, well, guess what? You're discouraged, so you're nothing to me. You're weak, you're foolish, you should know better, out. That's not what Jesus does. Instead he says, look over the course of his entire life and ministry and make your judgment. He says, this man is a great prophet of God. This man is faithful to God, even in the midst of difficulty. This man went to prison for God. In fact, this is the greatest of all men. Now, when you hear that, when you hear Jesus making that kind of that should make your heart jump for joy. You know why? Because that's how Jesus is going to vindicate you on the day of God's judgment. People say there's only two certain things of certainty, death and taxes. Well, how about death and the judgment? Because I can skip out on taxes. I can evade taxes. I have a relative that went 20 years and didn't pay a dime. Now she's got to pay it back, but you can, you can skip taxes. Here's the two things that are certain in this life, death and judgment. All of us are going to die one day and all of us are going to stand before God one day and we will give an account for our lives. And notice, by example here, Jesus says, this is what it's going to look like for my people. When, when, when you stand there, I will be your savior. I will be your vindicator. The, the reality is, even as God's people, even as Christians, we struggle in this life. We get discouraged. We sin. We are not always the best spouses. We are not always the best parents. We are not always the best friends or the best employers or employees. Sometimes we can be pretty wicked. And the reality is, on our worst day, we don't want God to judge us. We don't want Him to, to look at that moment of our life and say, okay, that's, that's what I'm basing my judgment on. You shouldn't want that. Because it will not go well for you if you do. And, and you think about the people that are looking around and seeing our faults. You think about the judgment they're making of us. That they're looking at those of us who have claimed to be Christians and saying, yeah, I don't know, man, that was, that was a pretty sarcastic, snarky comment. I'm not, I'm not sure about them. They're supposed to be a, supposed to be a, a, a person of faith. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that they're really saved. I'm not sure that they're really a, a Christian. I mean, look, look at the way that they treat their kids. Look at the way that they, that they, they, they speak to their spouse. I, 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 I'm not sure about them. But Jesus knows our hearts. He sees our faith even at our weakest. And he sees us at our best and when we stand the final day before God, Jesus is going to come alongside us as we stand there facing the Almighty Judge with absolutely nothing to say in our defense because He knows everything about us. Even the thoughts that, that we know we shouldn't say. And so we keep in our heads. But we still think them. We, we still desire evil for people. Jesus is going to come alongside His people and say, Father, let me tell you about my disciple. And we're going to be absolutely astonished. He's going to say, let me tell you about my servant, my friend. Let me tell you about all the times he sacrificed when no one was watching because he loved me. Let me tell you about the times she fought off grumbling in her heart because she had faith in me. Let me tell you about all the times that he felt convicted about his sin. And he turned away and made huge changes to his life because he wanted to worship you, Father, and you alone. Let me tell you about how she loved me more than money. Or, or family, or even life itself. Let me tell you about that, God. 
so that you will know that they are mine. They have put their faith in me and that they deserve to be in your eternal kingdom. Our life of faith that we have lived is going to be vindicated before the whole world. He's not going to look at the low times and just say, sorry, you don't measure up. He's going to look at the entirety of our lives. He's going to say, look at all of this evidence that they loved me. Look, look, look at all of this evidence that, that they trusted in me. And that trust, that faith by which they found forgiveness led them to live a life of love and good works before me. And when we know that that's our future then that frees us from so many things. First of all, it frees us from a performance mentality. That, that we, have to, we have to work hard and work hard and work hard and then God will make us right. No, no, no. It is, it is faith in Jesus alone that makes us right and therefore all the good that we do is driven by love and thankfulness for what He has done for us. More than that, we can have confidence now that Jesus is not a harsh judge He's not one that stands over us condemning day after day after day, even in our discouragement, but rather he is one who patiently cares for us and tends to us and will one day vindicate the totality of our life. But it is also, secondly, that he vindicates the message of faith. He vindicates the life of faith, but he also vindicates the message of faith. Now, some of you in this room are grandparents. Some of, this, some of you in this room are great-grandparents. So others of you hope to be grandparents one day and, and others of you still yet are so young you're not thinking about grandparents except that you know them and you love them and you like to go to their house and that's okay. Uh, each person is in a different place at life. But, but wherever you're at, imagine for a second that you are a grandparent and that you have grandchildren and they're planning on going to Disney World soon. And those grandchildren have never been to Disney World before. And one of their other grandparents was the first to describe Disney World to them. They tell them about the rides and the food and the games and the and the, the big stuffed Disney guys that are walking around everywhere. That would be exciting to hear about, wouldn't it? That'd be pretty great. But then but then think about the other grandparents. Another grandparent who who actually takes them online and shows them pictures of Disney World. And shows them videos and brings their imagination to reality. And says, look at all this amazing stuff that's going to be there when you get there. Isn't that going to be great? And that would be pretty cool to be that grandparent, wouldn't it? But suppose, suppose that you, you actually live in Florida. So, so you're the grandparent that the kids, you have the house the kids drive to the night before. And you have the house that they sleep in. And you have the van that they load up in the next morning. And you're the grandparent that actually gets to drive them to Disney World and say, there's Disney World. Look how great it is. And you're the grandparent that gets to, to, to hold their hand as they walk in and, and they, they, they see the enchanted kingdom and they get to, to eat the ice cream and ride the rides. You can say, look at all this. Look at all this great stuff. Isn't this amazing? You would pretty much be the, the best grandparent in the world, right? Especially to the parents if you paid for the tickets, but that's something else. Think about what Jesus, what, what Jesus is saying about John here. He's defending John. He says, I tell you this, he's not only a prophet, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now that's pretty amazing. Think about what Jesus is saying there. Apart from Jesus himself, who's though fully human, more than human, he's saying, among those born of women, how many human beings are born of women? At this point in history, all of them, right? We don't do human cloning yet. And I hope we never do, but that's another, that's another sermon. Among all those born of women, none is greater than John. Now think about what Jesus is talking about here. This is, this is in the context of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Who do the, who do the Jewish people love? Father Abraham. 
Who else they love? Moses the lawgiver. Who else they love? David their king. And Jesus is saying, John tops them all. He's greater than all those people. And you think, Jesus, how can you say that? Guys, guys languishing in prison right now. How can you say that he is the greatest of all these people? What makes him so great? Because he is the last of the old covenant prophets. And so his joy, his responsibility is, is not just to say, hey, Messiah is coming, the Christ is coming, the Savior is coming. He knows that. Others have said that. He doesn't just get to say, here's what his ministry will be like. Here's what the Savior will do. Here's what he will say. Others have done that. What John gets to do, what no one else has been able to do up to this point in the history of the world, is to stare Jesus Christ in the face, to look into his eyes, to see his beard, and to say, this is the Christ. This man standing before you here, he is the Savior. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't just stand afar off and predict and point and look. He gets to be there to hold and to touch and to see and to experience Jesus in the flesh. And Jesus says, that puts him head and shoulders above anybody else that has ever come before. And so Jesus is not just vindicating the ministry of John, but the very message that John was bearing witness to, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was there, even though, even though he was probably unclear about what the gospel would actually be, as we see here. Nevertheless, he is bearing witness to this message by pointing to Jesus, who is the message? The message of his life, death, and resurrection for sinners. And notice even more unbelievable, the rest of the verse He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, what does that mean? And if we just had this argument that John is the greatest, how can anybody be greater? The kingdom that Jesus is talking about is the new covenant kingdom of himself that he inaugurates and establishes by his death on the cross. And what he says is, even the lowest, the weakest, the least Christian believer in the world for all time is greater than John the Baptist, who is himself the greatest person who ever lived to that point in the world. How, how can you say that, Jesus? You're, you're blowing our minds here. Simply this. While John pointed to Jesus and the salvation that he was going to bring, we have experienced the salvation that Jesus came to bring. See, does that mean John wasn't saved? No, of course he was saved. He was saved just like us, by grace, through faith, through faith in the promise of God. Just like us. But we've seen the fulfillment of the promise of God, and, and John didn't. John sits in prison, and that's where he'll die very shortly after this. He'll never get to see the cross or the resurrection but by faith, we have seen that. We've seen the fulfillment of the promise. We know of Jesus' perfect life lived out in all righteousness, fulfilling all of God's plan that that, that righteousness might be counted as our own when we trust Him. We know of Jesus' cross where God's condemnation of the sin of His people was unleashed in its fullness on Jesus who died in our place that we might be forgiven. We know of Jesus' glorious resurrection as God raised up His Son from the dead that He might reign forever and that we might be justified before God. We know of the outpouring of Jesus' Spirit on the church that we might live holy lives in this world bearing well the name of our Savior. 
As great as John was, he never experienced those things. He never experienced that grace of God in his life. But we have. We have. And so, Jesus says the very message of the gospel, the message of all things freely offered to sinners in him, is vindicated in our lives today. All of us who have been called out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light can give witness to the reality that the gospel is true. That it is the power of God unto salvation. That it not only frees us and, and brings forgiveness of past sins, but also brings power now that we might free, be free from present sins. That God might actually change our lives in this world. We can know this. And we can tell others, not just because someone else has said it, someone else has predicted it, but we ourselves have experienced it. So very often we are, we, we are timid and fearful, unwilling to share the love of God and Jesus. But do you see the great privilege, the great privilege we have on this side of the cross? Do you see, oh Christian, the, the great honor that it is to tell others of the gospel of Christ? We don't have time for the final point this morning, so we will come back and we will finish that next week. For now, let me, let me finish by telling you what happened to Allison. Allison has asked God for years, why are you doing this? What are you doing at this time in my life? And the answer that had always bounced around in her head was something like this. Lord, I think that maybe one reason my health fell apart when I was 27 years old is because you knew I couldn't do it at 26. I couldn't do it alone. I needed Chad, my husband. And if he hadn't been with me at 27 and I got sick at 25, he might not have married such a medical basket case. But then just a few years ago, Allison realized that was totally wrong. As wonderful as her husband is, even holding her some nights all night when she's in excruciating pain and can't sleep, she realized that he is not what God is doing in her life. It finally dawned on her for the first time that two months before she was diagnosed with infertility, Two years before she'd been diagnosed with, their nerve dis- with her nerve disorder, she and her husband had joined a church, a faithful church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And week after week after week after week, they had heard the faithful preaching of God's word. And she says that she suddenly realized this, Lord, this happened to me once I was under the teaching of your word, and it is your word that has sustained me. It's not my husband as wonderful as he is, it's your word word. Week in and week out, Jesus was sustaining her discouraged faith by the promises of his faithfulness. He was assuring her of his vindication of her faith one day. Jesus was showing her again and again and again, there is no need to look for someone else. He alone is the savior that she needs. This morning, I hope that you're here and you know that Jesus is the savior that you need. Some of you have known that for years and I want to encourage you to continue to believe it, to continue to go to God and his word and to see that again and again and again how Jesus encourages us even in our discouragement. And there are some of you that are here and you've not trusted in Christ. And I hope this morning you've seen that Jesus is one that you can trust in. Jesus is one that you can depend on. Jesus is one that you can put your faith in to be forgiven of your sins and to be right with God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning that does encourage us, that shapes our understanding of who Jesus is and how we should live our life. We pray, God, this week that we would 
we would know again and again that we don't need to look for someone else. Jesus alone is the Savior that we need. Father, we ask these things in His name. Amen. As we continue.